It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. There's something wrong with the way we interact with technology, says filmmaker Jeff Orlowski. In the making of his film, The Social Dilemma, he discovered technology has changed the way we think and interact with one another. Social media platforms are intentionally engineered to be addictive and manipulative. This has global scale implications, says Orlowski. For those of us in society that engage with these big social platforms, we are each being fed a very personalized, individualized feed and perspective of the world. And we literally are losing out on a shared culture and we're being force-fed infinite subculture. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Institute's Society of Fellows. Jeff Orlowski, who runs the filmmaking company Exposure Labs, thinks about systems-level challenges in his work. His team created the films Chasing Coral and Chasing Ice about climate change. Just like a warming planet, the repercussions of technology are immense. Social media is transforming our information ecosystem and threatening democracy. In The Social Dilemma, which was released on Netflix last year, he interviewed Tristan Harris, a technology ethicist who co-founded the Center for Humane Technology. Harris is featured in the trailer. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. Just like climate change, Orlowski says the problem has solutions. It's solvable. In a conversation with Vivian Schiller, he explains why an unregulated social media landscape cannot coexist with a healthy, functioning democracy. Schiller leads Aspen Digital at the Aspen Institute. She kicks off the talk, which was held in August. I was telling Jeff, I have a, in the first part of my career, I was in documentary films for, for 18 years, and I cannot, it, it, I mean, it is so rare for a film to just take off, a documentary film, no less, to take off like this. I feel like this film was on the tip of everybody's tongue for so long, and it really kind of changed the narrative. So um, why do you think it broke through? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, not like the, the, it's not like you revealed new information that nobody had revealed before. Right, right. I, I think it came, I think we've all been sensing that something's wrong with the way we interact with our technology. Right, we all know why are we all, like, why is our posture so bad? Why are we all just spending so much time <laughs> staring into this thing? It has disrupted our families, our communication, our friends. It has changed the way we relate with each other. And it does it in a way that is still oddly satisfying. So, like, you can critique it. I can't tell you how many parents I met while making this film where it's like, oh, my kids are terrible. They're on their phone all the time. And then we're done speaking, and then they're just, like, stuck yeah. in for, like, <laughs> well, that equal amount. Like, literally, right our phones are both, like, right here. I didn't want to hide it. But, um, I need but um, the, uh, I think we've all been sensing that this isn't necessarily how we want to live our lives and how we want to be, and this isn't the relationship that we want with our technology. Um, and then it came out at a time, I, I also do think not, to, well, to give credit to our incredible team, um, we tried to design the film in a way that would be able to speak to a lot of different people and a lot of different audiences. So there are lots of nonfiction films where I, I think at the beginning we considered 
this as a nonfiction film that could have been wall-to-wall talking head. And I think the approach there would have worked for some audiences, but not necessarily for as many as, as ultimately did, um, that did watch the film. Um, and so we really tried to work hard to figure out how do we as a team take these really, really intricate, complex ideas, distill them down to the most straightforward, simplest way that we could explain them and, and make them really relatable. And I, I think a lot of people saw themselves in the families portrayed. A lot of them, a lot of people felt um, a different relationship with their phone after seeing it. And I, I'm just, I think our whole team is really grateful that, that it became a talking point, that it became something that people wanted to discuss and it resonated with people. And, um, uh, and yeah, just added to the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that family was the secret sauce. Mm, yeah. I mean, because, like you say, yeah. everybody recognizes as a parent, you recognize yourself as a, you know, someone yeah. who is addicted. You know, I, I, recognize, I recognize myself in all of the characters yeah. at the yeah, same yeah. time, actually. And the fam- just if I can add there, like, yeah. um, the family, like, through line wasn't even the intention that we originally were starting with. That was sort of like a byproduct from the desire for the algorithm through line. So when we had, we had shot for many, many months, we had like a year or two's worth of footage, we had this documentary basically cut together, and we had this vision for incorporating this narrative element. And for me, the narrative element that I really wanted to elevate was the algorithms to show what we had learned about how algorithms work. Like, I knew nothing about algorithms before going into this. And through the countless conversations with engineers around, like, no, this is what it's doing. It's, it's as if blank. It was countless times where they were explaining to us, it's as if, imagine somebody there and they're looking at everything that you do and they're changing what they show you based on your interactions. So the, the real desire was to bring that to life, to anthropomorphize the algorithms. And then we had this, this concept to pair that. Our writer, Vicky, had the concept of pairing that with uh, a family story. And then it was just the challenge of mapping all of that and then working those two, those two through lines together. So how did it, so you don't, like you say, you, you learned about algorithms as part yeah. of doing this film. So you're, you're not a technologist by background. This has no. not been your mission. Yeah. So how did this come about? Yeah, so um, uh, I, I went to Stanford. Uh, I was class of 2006 at Stanford, which I think is, is not just relevant, but critical in that this film literally would not have existed if I wasn't there at that point in time with my friends who went to school. Um, there was a period where I wanted to go into tech and was working on startups, like small startups, to like reinvent news back in 2006. Um, but then uh, my friends ended up continuing down the path of technology, and I ended up in documentary film. And it was 2017 where that kind of came back full circle. And it was friends of mine who had gone to Stanford who were working, um, specifically with Tristan, one of the Tristan main subjects Harris, in the film. Yeah. yeah. So Tristan went to Google and he started speaking out about the manipulative design techniques that, that he was aware of, that he had learned, that he saw being built into these platforms. And um, he and I first, we, we, we had known each other from college in passing. We kind of reconnected when I saw him talking about this. Um, and we met up in San Francisco and he shared this to me as, he saw this as a climate change of culture. Hmm. And if, so my, my past films, Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral, um, those are climate um, focused films. We were trying to create visual evidence of climate change. And I'd spent a decade just thinking about systems level challenges and systems level problems. And okay, you've got this entire planet and we change this one little chemical a little bit and look at the outcomes. And Tristan was here saying, this is the same exact thing with our information ecosystem. 
We've got climate change affecting our biological ecosystem on the planet, but we, have, we now have technology shaping our information ecosystem. And if you intentionally or unintentionally change some of the dials and turn you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, what people are seeing in different ways, it disrupts the whole thing. The whole thing becomes out of balance. And that was sort of the realization that I came to early on in hearing from Tristan. And that's really what set out the entire exploration. Um, it was through Tristan, through some of his peers and colleagues, and then meeting other friends from college, and, and all of those doors opening to really try to understand what the hell is going on with this technology. What is it doing to us? What is it doing to us at the individual level and at the society? societal level and recognizing that there are changes happening all across that spectrum. You know, I remember when the film came out, I was thinking, wow, you've, you've really, this film is coming along. You made this film at the perfect time, just when, you know, all, yeah. like I said, all this information is out there, but, you know, people know there's a problem, but they right. need to understand it in a way that feels very visceral. Yeah. Of course, you made the film. <laughs> Before we knew there was going to be a global pandemic yeah. and before we knew that our democracy would face the mortal yeah. peril that it did on January yeah. 6th. Yeah. I mean, this is all. So how would you? I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, um, I there are so many times where people are like, oh, wow, this came out at the perfect time. And in the back of my head, it's like, yeah, you need to be able to predict that multiple years in advance so you can start <laughs> making your movie yeah, a yeah, couple exactly. years before that perfect time. Yeah. Um, and uh, that, I think that's actually always been part of um, our process for thinking through and selecting projects. It's like, I'm thinking, what's the story two years from now? What's the story three years from now? Like, how do we make something now that is going to apply value to society at the right time? Um, I think part of that is that we're, we were not looking to cover anything in the news cycle. We were looking for the deeper ultimate truths. And if this theory that we learned from our subjects is correct, then this is a timeless piece, um, at least for a meaningful chunk of time until hopefully these systems change and we fix these things. Ultimately, I think that that's why we do the work, our team, our company, Exposure Labs, why we do the work that we do is that both with climate and with tech, these are very solvable problems, and we can love to come back to that as well. But like these are these are yeah, things that we well. can make changes on. These are not just like oh well, that's the reality of it. Throw our hands up, we can't do anything about it. It's the fact that we recognize and see there are challenges that we actively can work to solve, and how can we as storytellers help um, help push the zeitgeist towards those solutions? To your, the part of your question around the pandemic in January sixth, uh, well, let's let's take January sixth because it, there's. There's a moment in the film uh, that you might recall where Tim Kendall, um, who helped build the business model at Facebook and was president of Pinterest, um, he, we, we posed the question to him, what are you most worried about? And his response was civil war. And when we were in, those of us in the room, in the interview room that day on set, we were like, Oh, that, that's that's heavy, right? Yeah. That that was like this huge yeah, too much, weight. Too much, a little, yeah. <laughs> some people were like, "That's you're a little exaggerating. It's yeah. a little too much." We included it in the cut. We had lots of varied feedback on that. Even after we premiered at Sundance, and as we were like releasing the film, there were people. Um, on our team, uh, marketing team, publicity, some very people were like, "Maybe you don't want to talk about that. That seems a little extreme wow. and a little out there." And and I appreciate their perspective and their desire to calibrate um, for the public messaging. But after January 6th happened, they were like, I get it now. Got it. OK. They, it, it, it's sometimes challenging. I think Tristan, Tim, the engineers, all the people who are working in this, they can see 
the global scale implications. Like, I, I feel like it literally is like they took the red pill and they see the matrix and they see how all the code works, like literally how the code works, and they can see, oh no, we are doing things that are optimized for each individual and just extrapolate out over 10 years, this is what's gonna, like the end result is civil war. Like it was, it was as plain as day to them, the articulation. These incentives for these companies are so misaligned with what they end up doing to society that these will be the outcomes. And so for us, the, the inclusion of that line um, for, it just seemed like the natural outcome of the thesis from their perspective. And then after January 6th happened, it, so many people were like, wow, it was very you know, ahead of the time and premonitious, et cetera. But it, it, I think it really is. The, the painful point for me is like, it's not gonna end with January 6th. Like the technology is still operating. We in America see a very specific filter bubble around American stories, but this is happening in countless other countries. I mean, the new, we're countlessly seeing tensions happening in other countries because of these same type of turmoils that are happening. For those of us in society that engage with these big social platforms, we are each being fed a very personalized, individualized, feed and perspective of the world. And we literally are losing out on a shared culture and we're being force-fed infinite subculture. We are each in our own individual feed. It's the incentive, I, I picture it as these four Venn diagrams, these four circles. It's the incentive for time. These are the things that are like new in our situation. The incentive for time, the ability to personalize Right, which you didn't have with the desktop computer. Each of us with our phone in our pocket has a very individualized, personalized, fully surveilled experience that is reflected back to us. Then you have the randomness of user-generated content where anybody can make anything and post anything. And then the last thing is the machine learning algorithms which are effectively just programmed natural selection. And if you take these four, like there are a bunch of, like Netflix exists in three of the four in my mind. Wikipedia is like just the user-generated content but not the ML algorithms. You have all different aspects of technology exist in different parts of this, this Venn diagram, but the middle, the, the center of it all is where I think the big problems coming out of big social exist. That's the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Instagrams, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, those are where there's an incentive for time. We feed you what works on you. We let anybody and anybody, everybody and anybody fill it with anything regardless of truth and then we're gonna iterate and evolve based on it. More incentive for time. This becomes this flywheel. It becomes this repetitious cycle where each and every one of you, let's say you're all on Twitter, we can use the word Twitter. It's a different thing for all of you. Right. Like each of you is literally saying, dif seeing different information on a daily basis. So. I look at it as speciation of thought. We're all on our own little Galapagos Islands. We're all evolving divergently. This is designed, programmatic, divergent evolution of ideas at the scale of billions of people. Like, it, we, we can't survive. Like, it is, you get this type of big social technology, or you get a functioning, healthy democracy based on truth and, like, objective conversation. You can't get both. Like, it is literally one or the other. And, and that's what I'm most concerned about. Maybe we can pick the conversation back up after this. <laughs> but but, but I am, I'm really, like, fundamentally, this technology, the way it's designed, the way it filters each and every one of us, speciation of thought, that is what I've concluded now, having worked on this for a couple of years. And and we're only a decade into this experiment, right? We're only a decade in. What is the next decade? What do the next two decades look like if we allow this technology to continue to run unregulated? 
Well, we haven't seen a whole lot of real incentive for change from the platform. Right. Some of you uh, were in the room, I guess it was a few weeks ago when Campbell Brown was here. Um, I watched, I, w I was not here, but I watched the video. And I just, first of all, I want to applaud all of you because your questions were tough and awesome. She didn't answer the questions, but they were great <laughs> and tough <laughs> questions about Facebook. Um, I, but I, we'll come back to what solutions are for a second. The one thing I want to, I just don't want to lose this point. You know, you told me when we were chatting before this, yeah. you said you used to be a tech optimist. Yeah. Now you're not so sure. But, but, but before I leave it, so I, it, it needs to be pointed out that mm -hmm. there are certain benefits of the democratization that social media has enabled. The best example I can think of, I'm not, this is not in contradiction to anything you, yeah, yeah. that you're saying, it's a, it's a both and. I mean, to me, the most powerful example is, you know, then 17-year-old Daniela Frazier, who, you know, picked up her cell phone and started shooting video with her cell phone of, you know, a cop murdering a black man in uh, Minneapolis, you know, George Floyd. Had she not, had she not shot that video, had she not posted that video, arguably that story would not have taken off and the, and the entire racial reckoning that came out of that outrageous moment in history, a shameful moment in history, would not have been realized. I don't think that would have been possible without social media. I think um, there's a difference there between the ubiquity of cameras versus the ubiquity of social media. Like there have been so many things, and this is where like we use the word technology very loosely and broadly, and there are lots of different implications of what types of technology are being affected, how and where. The ability to capture that footage and to share that footage is very different than that happening through social media platforms. So um, there are. But isn't that how they took root? Isn't that how, in many ways, the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, really took off? Yes. However, at the same time, there have been countless social movements throughout time. I don't think that social activists are dependent on social media for change. Activists will always find the best available tool to get their message across. I am very happy and proud of many of the activists that I know and are friends with that have been using whatever means that they can to get their message through, whether environmental, BLM, all of these different issues. But I think the tools that we need for social change versus how we've become hamstrung by them, like what they're doing to us as a whole. It's like, yeah, we can be really proud. It's exciting that you're able to fly here on a plane today, but the, the fossil fuel emissions yeah. have a, a different societal implication. We can look at the individual momentary positive values of what comes out of technology. And this is where ultimately there's the whole conversation, like is technology neutral, is it not neutral? But when, when technology is fueled through a business model that in my mind is exploitative and extractive, right? And this is just one person with one opinion, both with fossil fuels and with big social. The implications to society as a whole are really harmful and I would argue net negative. And so despite the individual positive outcomes that can come, uh, one of our interview subjects, he used this line that didn't make it into the film. There's, there's a big difference between connection and connectivity. Right. Social media offers connectivity. 
not real human-to-human connection. We feel start, like that's the, when people are using social media and you're scrolling for hours and you feel worse at the end of it, it's not because you had access to all these people, right? It, it wasn't providing something that is real human connection and what we're really designed and built around and what we're striving for. That system was designed as a hack around how is it gonna improve the business model for this particular company where attention is the currency, right? So that, the, the way that the system is designed right now versus the way that positive messaging and stories can get out into the world, I look at them as separate things. They become very conflated in the world of big social. The ability to connect with my friends and family versus the ability to be aware of news and information and what's going on in the world, all of this has been blended into one yeah. feed that for each and every one of us is a different ratio and a different balance what, based on whatever the hell works on your brain. Once again, it's like literally filling the tube with whatever content, any possible content in the entire world that anybody can make that's digitized that in some way we think it's going to work on your individual brain. That's what's, what's being shown and represented to you regardless of truth, regardless of accuracy, regardless of the impact that it may or may not have on your life. And so I, all to say, like, yes, there are positive things that come out of global connectivity, but that, that's different than global connection. And um, I, don't, I, I hope that yeah. gets to the part of your question yeah. there. No, and Facebook, you know, Facebook likes to say the algorithm is you, meaning it is your behavior, it is your individual desires as they are expressed on the platform that are giving you what you want. We're just giving you what you want. I'm, I, for those of you who are parents, like how many of you let your kids just have whatever they want in the grocery store? It's like, I don't know, part of me looks at it like th when this notion of giving people what they want is flawed in, in many ways. Um, but certainly for me personally, in my own experiences, in my own relationship with social media, um, I saw how I personally got so deeply sucked into a particular lens and particular perspective. Um, there's a problem in AI, when AI engineers work and build things called the local maximization. And uh, we're in Aspen, you can think of it as like a mountain peak, where if we're hiking up this mountain peak, we might get to the top of this peak without realizing that down the valley and up over there is a bigger peak. And a, and a different peak that we might be more interested in. But it is locally maximized based on my interests. I feel this, I mean, Spotify is not changing the way we see and understand the world, but I have my gripes with Spotify because it just gives me the same type of music over and over yeah. and over again. And I like lots of other types of music that it never shows me and never shares. That, that's just a small example of an algorithm that is that has gotten itself into its own little funnel and is losing out on the, the broader perspective opportunities um, just because of the way that the technology is designed. Aspen Ideas To Go is rolling out a new offering delivered in short form. Quick Take hits your feed every Friday and features an insight, story, or fascinating idea worthy of your attention. These bursts of enlightenment are often under five minutes and never more than ten. Hear from Special Olympics Chairman Tim Shriver on why educators should focus on emotional health this school year. Couples therapist Esther Perel talks about why romanticism is killing relationships. And tech researcher Yasmin Green explains how technology can help people leave conspiracy movements. Look for Quick Take in the Aspen Ideas To Go stream and start getting an extra dose of ideas each week. Here's the rest of today's show. So let's talk about, so you could wait, if you could wave a magic wand, 
<laughs> what, 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 what does social media look like? Or does it not even exist at Ooh. all? Um, okay. Uh, I love the question. <laughs> I might, I'm going to break it into a couple parts, if okay, I may. Sure. Because I, I, I feel like phase one is just like taming the beasts that exist right now. And we need to regulate big social actively. We need to change the business model incentives. We need to redesign the incentive structure for big social. Um, and I think those are the short-term, like immediate aspects. And there are lots of different people working on that, whether we're talking about antitrust, Section 230, lots of regulatory options there in terms of um, getting some sense of control there. The other side of the spectrum, like the dream scenario, um, imagine software that you loved using that made you feel genuinely closer and more connected with your friends and family. And I think the experience that we've all gone through with COVID has given this invitation around like, oh, like what exactly do I want out of my life? How exactly do I want to spend my time? Who are the people that I really genuinely care about? Um, one of the things that we learned in the process of making the film is the concept of the Dunbar number, which is th the number is 150. And this was a researcher said that, who said that basically we evolved a, effectively around tribes of around 150 people. And that's all that a human being can maintain in terms of close relationships in their life. You can maintain about 150 close relationships. And if you think about that for a second, like Facebook has convinced us that we can have thousands of friends, right? Like the, the, the notion, the, the kind of usurping of the language, the like we genuinely don't have that many friends in our life. So what would it look like if you actually had so, like software that deepened in a meaningful and tangible and powerful way the relationships with those top 150 people in your life? This is something uh, my partner and I, right now, she and I are working on building like literally our Dunbar list. Like who's in our 150 <laughs> club that we want to spend more and more time with on a regular basis? FaceTime and Zoom are technologies that we have paid for, whether you got it through your phone or you pay for a Zoom subscription, to allow you to have meaningful, long conversation with the people that you want to talk to. It's not pinging you and saying, hey, you haven't spoken to this person in four months. You haven't spoken to, it's not nagging you, trying to just get you to spend more time on Zoom, right? That's not the business model. Like it's, it's actually technology that's designed for us, for the, the user experience. And I think those are, those are the questions that I have in mind. I actually believe we could have a completely rebirth of social technology. I won't call it social media. Um, and it's not technology that's designed to milk and extract our every possible minute and waking moment so that we can see another ad for their business model. That, that's not serving the highest function of, human, of humanity. And so if, if there was technology that really was designed to hey, your friend's lonely right now. Do you want to go hang? You know, can you give them a call? Or hey, you guys schedule your regular weekly dinners in this time. Like there are so many different ways that technology could actually foster real meaningful human connection. That's what I'm hungry for. But those are not going to, and I say this sort of mm -hmm. slightly sarcastically, those are not going to drive shareholder value. I mean, yeah. these, I mean, if you've looked at the earnings reports from big tech, I mean, people are just, you know, even, yeah. even the experienced financial analysts are calling it bonkers. So, you know, Facebook, let's just pick on Facebook for a minute yeah. uh, again. <laughs> I mean, their model is based on selling, uh, on advertising, yeah. and they are a ruthlessly efficient, ad, targeted ad delivery right. behemoth. Right. Facebook, I mean, th these models are 
designed by capitalism for capitalism where the public is the raw resource. We are the natural resource being mined out of that business model. And I think that that model only has so much life to it. Just as there is a period, I mean, we can jump back to a decade ago where the fossil, we could have the same conversation around fossil fuels where yes, we shouldn't burn fossil fuels, but look at the implications for shareholder value and look at how profitable it is. We're seeing that page turn. Like we're seeing that chapter turn now where the financial viability, like we're hitting the, the bubble on big oil, right? And so as that continues to shift, we're recognizing, wait, the way we need to run civilization as a whole isn't functional if we keep burning fossil fuels in the status quo. I think there will be the, the time that comes where the same exact thing is applied instead of big social, where the extractive nature of attention and what it's doing, it's a public health crisis at scale, it's a misinformation crisis at scale. You have COVID implications, you have political polarization implications, you have countless aspects of how society, the fabric of society in this country and every country around the world is being fundamentally ripped apart by this technology. And, oh, it drove shareholder value for a, a good decade there. I mean, I, when I was in college, my investment, my Roth IRA, I put money into big social. I put money into Facebook and Google because I, I thought they were great companies at the time. That was the but it, story But it's that not we had. just the tech companies. It's the, it's the, it's, it's I've all since divested, FYI. But yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's the entire advertising. I mean, this is, you know, yeah. we can go off on a whole other tangent of how, the problem of this is for, for independent media, but it is, I mean, advertising now is basically effectively synonymous with Facebook and YouTube and yeah. other platforms. Because yeah. it is I driving value, it, you know, it is driving value for those advertisers who are trying to connect. And it works really well because, you know, you are actually, you know, television ads are, are hugely wasteful. Targeted ads where I can target my ad to somebody and it's going to provide them a service actually because we've reason to believe that you were interested in what we we're trying to sell. That is the I, I, From my own personal experience and my belief on what society wants, I think we're so sick and tired of ads and being sold to all the time. I mean, I even on YouTube where targeted advertising is supposed to make it more relevant, like the ads are just infuriatingly a boundary to the information that I'm trying to seek out. Um, I hope and envision a world where we move beyond this ad model. And I think the challenge is, the challenge goes back to the formation of the internet, where at the time when the internet was first born, nobody had incentive or desire to pay for the content. So the only model that was really buildable and the one that, that, that yielded the greatest results was the ad model. But I look at that as a phase. I look at that as like, that's what got the internet kickstarted and, and hopefully we're gonna evolve past that. Um, yeah, that, that's my take on it. So in your view, there really is no, there is, I mean, because that is fundamentally the underlying model for a Facebook or a YouTube. Right. There, you see no path forward there. Um, I, I don't see self-regulation of the company solving yeah. it. And, but, but Twitter is talking about different business models, right? This Twitter's, is the thing. Twitter, Twitter's different. Twitter's yeah. different, right? But then you have companies like Neva coming out, like literally the executives from Google who said, we don't like how Google operates anymore. It's creating a new search engine where you can pay for the search engine, like five bucks a month, and you get your... You, you get all the benefits of quality search without the harms of the surveillance society and civilization that we're living in. That's coming from, that's a new company being built from Google executives, 
right? That is the zeitgeist shift that I think we're entering into. And it's not going to come if Facebook and, and other companies dig in their heels and try to stick with it. The same analogy with fossil fuels. If a fossil fuel company considered it an energy company versus an oil company, right? They don't have to dig fossil fuels up for the business model of what we as the public want and need. We want energy, but it doesn't have to come from those methods. Those companies could have made that shift many, many years ago, moving away from fossil fuels and towards sustainable energy. I think that's the same reality that we've, we see with, with social media right now. And for better or worse, I think they're going to try to milk out every possible cent that they can out of the advertising business revenue model and very slowly make these changes at the, at the great expense of society. So where do you see, where do you see hope? Is it, do you, are you, is it in antitrust regulation? Or, well, we've got to give some hope here. <laughs> My, I, I, I am both very optimistic and very pessimistic, both about climate and around tech. Yeah. But unfortunately, my hope comes from a sense that things are going to get worse for quite a while and that things are going to continue to get worse and things will collapse and that will force a change in a reckoning. That might be somewhat pessimistic, but in my mind, I actually see that as very optimistic around in the long run we're going, to be able, we're going to be all right if we actually take the lessons from these failures and rebuild our, our economy and our infrastructure and our ecosystems in the way that we know are regenerative and sustainable. I think that's, that's ultimately the, the big parallel here. If I can take a, a step back for just a second, um, there's a book that I just read called Braiding Sweetgrass, and um, the author brings this analogy in the film around nature. And if, uh, if a forest gets clear cut and wiped out, First, the pioneer species come in to kind of take over. And it's a certain species that comes in, and it'll be like this pioneer landscape for a period of time. But that's not sustainable. That's not actually what's going to last for that ecosystem for the long haul. So that pioneer species, that, that it's going to evolve and change, and then it's going to shift over time to an old growth forest with a much better balance of all the different species in that ecosystem. That, that is my hope for where we are as a civilization right now, both with climate and with tech, that our pioneering nature, we recognize, is not sustainable for how certainly 8 billion people on this planet operate. And we need to recalibrate all of these systems in a way that work for the greater good of the whole for long-term survival of the species. That's, that's my hope, and I actually do feel a lot of optimism through that. I feel that through Gen Z, I feel that through the activists that are working on this, and I feel it through the very blatant, obvious reality that our systems are not working for everybody. And, and change will be forced and will be mandated. And I think the question is just, do we rebuild these systems in a very sustainable and equitable way or not? And can we get there without our country being torn apart any further than it is? Yes, yes. Um, and I think that's the, the challenging part of the question. And I, that one, I'll put a pin in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are your personal tech habits? Do you, what do you? Uh, no social media, zero. zero. Um, I still kept those accounts because there's that like friend from high school that I literally don't know any other way to reach them. But um, in the making of The Social Dilemma, deleted all of those um, platforms from my phone, don't use any of them. Um, I've become so much more aware of like, when am I pinging somebody else? Because it's very, it's like, who am I to impose a message on you at 11 o'clock at night and disrupt your sleep because I just wanted to get something off my chest right now? Um, so really rethinking my entire use of technology. Um, when is software and when is technology actually, when am I the customer? When am I paying for it? When, I'm, when, it is, when is it serving me? And when is it providing benefit to me? I've been actively and eagerly paying for software all across the board. Uh, media as well, but like, what can I contribute my little vote with, you know, 
know, a subscription to say, yes, I want this. I want more of this in the world. Um, so I'm seeking out, I, I really try not to use anything that's free. It's hard to not use any big tech. I mean, Google, are you not using your I don't use Google as a search Duck, engine. Duck, I use DuckDuckGo on Brave. Yeah. Um, Google Maps still works a lot better than Apple Maps, yeah. and I try not to use Google Maps whenever I can because I don't want that surveillance tracking built into the system. Yeah. Um, but but the, the function is still a lot better. So I still use Google Maps, and I still use Gmail um, just because I haven't found a better product to migrate my whole team over to. Yeah, yeah, but, it's, it's but, hard. <laughs> but yeah, for me, the, the actually, it was the process of making the social dilemma. I had this like really unique experience of like learning from all the engineers how the algorithms work and learning about all of these def different techniques that the algorithms would use. So then at the same time, like I literally, I deleted, I was super heavy addicted to Facebook. Facebook was like the, the, the one that figured out my brain. And that's part of it. Like when we use the phrase social media, whether we're talking about Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or any of these things, probably each and every one of you has one that you're most vulnerable to. It's like, for one of my roommates, it's YouTube will suck him into hours and hours of a rabbit hole. And, right, but each, each of our brains works slightly differently. A 60-year-old grandparent has a different way that, that a, a little ding is gonna work on you than an eight-year-old kid. And it brings up very different things in what it shows us. It's the same principle of what's gonna work on your brain applied across the entire spectrum of society that is having different results if you're on the left versus if you're on the right versus your age versus your socioeconomic status, et cetera. So um, for me, I was learning all of that while I was making the film. And I deleted the Facebook app, but I was still logged in in the browser because I still wanted to check. And then I was like trying to actively wean myself off, and then I logged myself on the, out of the browser. Um, I, I tried to swap it in with news and other information just to like fill that like desire, like that little moment of boredom where I'm like, why, like let me just go to my phone. And very soon after that, I started getting text messages from Facebook trying to get me to come back onto the platform. And I learned that was the resurrection algorithm. Like literally programmed into the system is my user case and how to get me to come back onto the platform. And I started to see all of the different messages and the timing and the randomness and emails that would come in just to try to get me to come back. And it was like, oh, this work colleague posted this thing. And oh, this friend of yours from college, did the blah, blah, blah. And then like, oh, this family member. And I was like really good at like, Discipline, not gonna click, not gonna go into it. Then it was like, this girl that you had a crush on in high school just posted a photo. Oh, you got me. I was like, oh. so, but, but interestingly, it was that experience that let me see how the system was operating, and then it was like, yeah. F this, I am, I am done. Like, I don't wanna take part in anything. And oddly, it was that awareness that made it very easy for me to then cut it cold turkey. Yeah. So I have one last question for you, and then we're gonna take your questions, so I hope you have them ready. What can we, all of us, yeah do. I mean, there's a, tend, a yeah. feeling of sort of powerlessness. Yeah. You know, is it yeah. just to stop cold turkey or, which is going to be hard for people. Yeah, in a similar way, I mean, my headspace is around these systemic challenges and with climate, you can ask that same question. Does, it, yeah. does my individual carbon footprint matter or not? My personal take on it is that we need government level, systems level change to solve these problems. And the individual actions are still important 
in large part to get more and more people aware of it and talking about it. Right? That's the big place where individual actions make the greatest difference, is that when your individual action becomes viral in and of itself through the way that you engage with your friends and your colleagues. And the other thing too, like if you're a shareholder in some of these companies, you have shareholder pressure that you can apply. If you know policymakers, local representatives, you can put pressure on those people. Policymakers need to know that the public cares about this. We need to talk about it enough. We need to be moving on this enough. Um, this is where I'm very excited about things like DuckDuckGo and Neva and platforms that are and Signal doing big campaigns, spending real advertising dollars to say, look, the existing system is broken and we need to move past it. So for me, I think it is, the, it is both at the individual and at the systemic level. We need to fight for these changes. We need to make these changes. Um, but talking about it with your friends and family is always the easiest place to engage and to grow out from there. Great. Yeah, Signal's a real, a real game changer. Yeah. OK, we would like your questions. My question is a little bit odd. Um, what would happen, and is it even doable, to pay the Russian hackers to <laughs> give the opposite of everybody's feed? Uh, I don't do social media, really, but if they got the opposite of what they thought they were supposed right. to get, what if, if for $5 million somebody could get to them and they just had for two <laughs> weeks, you just were brainwashed the yeah. other way? Yeah. That's, uh, I love the question. Creative. Let me, let me, uh, there are a couple different ways I can take that, but let me, let me start with this experience that my writer and I had at the beginning of making this film, where I gave her my Facebook feed and took her Facebook feed. And we were sitting there and we were looking at each other's phones. And it was like alternate reality through a very close friend and somebody that we had so many mutual friends. We knew really, really well, same age, same, like all, like, and it was, a complete vortex of a different experience that each of us had on Facebook. So I would, first of all, I'd really encourage that. That's one of the things that I think is a very easy, tangible thing. Do a reality swap with a friend of yours, especially if there's a friend of yours that you really disagree with politics on and you're having a really hard time talking about fill-in-the-blank issue that you're struggling with. Just say, hey, I'd love to try this thing. I know you're on Facebook all the time. I know you're on fill-in-the-blank all the time. Can we just try, like, swap? And I just want to see what you're seeing and I want you to see what I'm seeing and let that experiment play out for a little bit. And you will find like, oh, I didn't realize you, oh, I see why you think this because you're seeing X, Y, and Z. It's a really, really powerful tool. I'm gonna put a pin on the like, let's hack everybody so yeah. that everybody can see that. <laughs> but, um, but I do, I would recommend that for, for a, a personal exercise with, with your friends and family. Great answer. Right, right here in the hat. You spoke to the, the current regulatory lag, which will persist because, um, you know, technology advancements will always outpace regulation, and so there's yeah. an opportunity to play catch-up. Um, but that would essentially mean that we're moving from, let's say, a dozen powerful companies making decisions to consolidated power, where you then have one political superpower, and, you know, there's a question of whether we trust politicians more than tech executives, from your perspective, is that a better scenario? I guess my assumption is that the regulatory efforts wouldn't consolidate power, that they, like the antitrust efforts right now are designed to break up some of the big tech power that exists. Yeah, so what I mean is now these tech companies have relative autonomy in making right. decisions. Right. But if you then regulate them, you give the government more authority and more power. 
Can you clarify which aspect of regulation you're talking about? Because then there's content moderation regulation versus regulating the business model. Right? What are you calling for? I'm calling for a ban on surveillance capitalism. That'd be my dream wish list, right? Then maybe surveillance advertising is a step beneath that, that fundamentally burning fossil fuels is bad for civilization. Building a, biz a tech business model based on a surveillance state and advertising model is as bad in my mind. My, my desire is not a matter of empowering the government to control speech at all. In fact, we have good, the FCC, is a great example of the government saying, here are the boundaries and the guidelines if you want to broadcast on the radio or if you want to broadcast on television. And the government built those FCC boundaries, but they're not there. It's not like every individual person is being regulated around like what is being said on those airwaves. Right? They built the, the playground in which news can, can operate. The challenge here is that the internet didn't follow any of those FCC regulations. The internet became its own wild, wild west, and now every individual person is effectively a broadcaster without any of the same FCC-style regulations or boundaries. One, one idea that I've heard is literally just applying the FCC guidelines to the internet. And if you are publishing on the internet as a publisher, and you have a following of a certain size, you have to adhere to certain standards, both around truth and journalism, et cetera. But like, like if that, let's just say 500 people was the boundary. The average person can say whatever they want to their friends and family. All of that is fine under free speech, right? And, and, and well, First Amendment gets into another whole category we can come to if you want. But, but the average person, if they're reaching out to 500 people, in their close family circle, that's a small scale compared to somebody with an audience reach of millions or millions, hundreds of millions of people where there are no guidelines around what can or cannot be said through those platforms. So I, I think just government can bring the, you know, what are the safety rails that we think meaningful, accurate representation of truth can exist within? And how do we design something along those lines? Simple question with a lot of ramifications. Um, what is the future of dating apps? We, we've been pitched the dating dilemma as well, oh. which is kind of an interesting, <laughs> I would like, love to watch look that. at how, <laughs> so, so the, the, the interesting part of, the, of, of your question for me is how dating apps have changed how an entire generation relates with itself now. Um, there's this, sort of trained mindset of infinite opportunity. Like literally a massive database exists and it's like yes, no, yes, no, yes, 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 no, yes, no. Like that is what we're training mostly our youth, right? But an entire generation of humans around how we engage and interact with the world. This is where like, that's just yet another layer on top of how big social has been affecting us around how do we make conversation with people? How do we make eye contact with people? How do we like actually practice the human experience in human social environments? And a pessimistic view might be that, oh yeah, in 10 years we're all just gonna be living in VR simulated experiences and living completely through that multiverse That's virtual. Like, now. Yeah, and so it doesn't even matter. Like the ability to have face-to-face -face conversation is moot when you exist in a completely online virtual world. So um, I don't know, I have, uh, very mixed feelings about it. I'm not planning on making a film about dating, but um, it, I think there's a lot of interesting conversation there. Yeah. With that, I yeah. think, uh, thank you all so much. Thank you for thank the really you. great questions. Thank you.
<laughs> so grateful for the time. Thank you, Jack. And thank you thank for you. the awesome question. <laughs> Jeff Orlowski is the founder and director of Exposure Labs, which created the Netflix film The Social Dilemma. Vivian Schiller is the executive director of Aspen Digital at the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held in August for Society of Fellows members. The Society of Fellows is a national community of leaders who sustain and support the Aspen Institute. Watch a video of the original conversation, hear more like it, and learn about SOF at aspeninstitute.org forward slash SOF. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening now. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Society of Fellows. It was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.